right. Well, if you're just joining us online, uh, welcome. Glad you're with us today. Glad all of us who are in the room are here as well. Uh, we're starting today uh, an eight-week series on the book of Ruth. I'm excited about it. Uh, I hope you're excited about it. And so today my goal is twofold. Now I'm going to warn you on the beginning. Normally I shoot for 3,000 words in a manuscript, and today I'm at like 3,600. Might be a little long, not too long, but that's why we have coffee, right, and stuff. So um, today my goal is twofold, okay? So we've got eight weeks in, in the book of Ruth. Uh, first thing I want to try to do today is just give you a set of lenses uh, by which we can walk through this book, to, to kind of give you a framework, if you will, for how we can walk through this book together. Uh, specifically, kind of an interpretive lens, an interpretive framework uh, that, that you can see to see this, that you can use to see this book and hopefully understand this book. Second, after that introduction work today, I just want to spend some time on the opening first few sentences of this book and get us into the world of this book, okay? Uh, in particular, the women of this book. So guys, I'm just going to warn you for the next eight weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the women of this book because that's who this book is about. And so uh, if you don't like that, get over it. I don't know what to tell you. But how do we read the book of Ruth? H how do we view the book of Ruth? Because the Bible is for all of us. H how do we view the story? Well, if you've ever spent time in the church and you've studied or you've heard this book preached, you've probably had the same lenses that I had on. Uh, I grew up in the church from the time I was a little boy. Uh, I've told this story before. I literally crawled down the middle under the pews, and my pastor picked me up and just kept preaching. So I'm still waiting for something like that to happen to me. I would deserve it, but that's how long I've been in the church. And I've heard the book of Ruth before, and I've, I've read the book of Ruth before. And um, the common sort of lens or view that I've seen this book uh, taught is a pretty, kind of a pretty simple love story, right? It's kind of like a, a, a feel-good love story where there's a series of bad offense that lead to this situation where the male hero, in this case Boaz, kind of rides in on the, the white horse of wealth and rescues the damsel in distress, and he makes all things good and fuzzy, and we focus on the kinsman-redeemer thing, which is a huge part of this story. Uh, and so I've read that book, I've heard that story, um, and so this book is not long. The book of Ruth is not long. I've been encouraging you to read it in one sitting. But I've found that I've never really hung on to this story. Like I've never grabbed onto it as like a story that really has like a lot of meaning for me. And I thought that was just because, well, you know, the main characters are women and so it doesn't apply to me or whatever. But I think that I kind of let this story just be like a feel-good story, but not much more than that. And so there, it was kind of thin. But what I think I've discovered and what I hope that we will all discover together is that this book has a lot more to offer than that. This book has a lot more to offer than that. So here's the lens I want to just propose to you that uh, I'm going to use as we make our way through this book that I hope you'll see this story through. The, the book of Ruth is, a, is less of a feel-good romance story, and it's more of the book of Job centered on a woman's experience in the ancient Near East. I think that's the lens that we can look at this book through. So the book of Ruth is a female book of Job, right? So the parallels between the book of Job and the book of Ruth are actually pretty interesting, pretty stunning. Uh, in both Job and Ruth, there is a main sufferer, which in the book of Ruth is actually Naomi, who is probably really the main character of this book. Uh, both main sufferers experience absolute catastrophic losses, Right? And even when you've studied the book of Job, and I've had this conversation many times with many of you, Job loses all his children, and then he gets more children. That like, doesn't fix it. 
right? You still lost those. And so both main characters suffer this incredible catastrophic loss, right? Now, Job loses livestock, wealth, children. He loses his own health. Naomi experiences famine. She becomes a refugee. She's losing not only her husband, but also her two sons. And here's the difference between these two. They both live in an overtly patriarchal society, an overtly patriarchal culture. But of course, Job is a man and Naomi is a woman. And so, although it's a complete devastation for both, for Job in that time, there is the possibility of kind of starting again. He can get more livestock. He he can uh, attain wealth again. But for for Naomi, who in this story is a post-menopausal widow in this patriarchal society, everything is lost. There is no starting over for her. This is devastation. In both stories, we see the sufferer take their eyes off of the suffering itself, and they turn their attention towards God, and they, they begin to doubt God's character. That's part of the parallel of both of these. Job, what does he doubt? He doubts God's justice, Naomi doubts God's love, his hesed, his covenant faithful love. And we're going to talk about that more. It's an important theme for this book. It's a thread running through the book, um, the, the, the love of God, the hesed of God. Both Job and Naomi have friends in the story who come along. And in both of these stories, the friends who come along find them almost unrecognizable because of the suffering they've endured. That, that's another parallel. And then the last part is that although God does come through in incredible ways, because that's what God does, in each of these books, we see a lack of answers for why. Why God? We, we don't get the reason behind the suffering in either of these books. And I actually think this is so important. I think that is a beautiful part of these books. Why? Because the truth is, The Bible was written in real human experience, and the real human experience of all of us is that life comes at us fast and hard, and sometimes we don't get answers. That's just the reality that we live in. Now, here's another important thing to take note of, uh, which is where the book of Ruth actually lands in both the Jewish scriptures and in our Christian canon. If you don't know what I I mean when I say the word canon, that just means the collection books that make up the Bible. The Bible is a library, not one book. It tells one overarching story of God, but it's a library of literature, of different genres. And so in the Jewish scripture, the book of Ruth lands right after the book of Proverbs, which is fascinating because we know that the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a book of how to live in the fear of the Lord, right? Which is the beginning of all wisdom, which is how Proverbs starts. So then the book of Ruth is like the immediate example story of what living wisely looks like, of what living in the fear of the Lord actually looks like. So now you've read Proverbs. Now let's give you an example. That's one thing to notice. In our Christian Bible, the book of Ruth falls right between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. So... On kind of a 30,000-foot view, this book creates a bridge between the time of the kings, which is what we start with in the book of Ruth, and the rule of King David, or that kingdom. So we see this kind of bridge here. But on the, so that's a 30,000-foot, but on the personal sort of family level, this book centers on solving a family's crisis. Like this family is about to go out of existence, 
And so we, we're, we're solving a family crisis, and there is the, the part of this that is interpretation of three important laws according to Moses. Okay? There's gleaning laws, there's what we call leverate laws, and the kinsman-redeemer laws. And all of those we're going to try to cover a little bit more. But that's three important things that are covered in this book. Here's what I, I love what one commentator said here about interpretation. Listen to this. So important. Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. That is a very profound way to say that. She lives on the hungry side of the law. So her perspective differs dramatically from Boaz, who lives on the well-fed side of the law. And his willingness to actually listen to her, one of the more jaw-dropping aspects of this story, moves him from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And as a result, a hungry widow is fed and a dying family is rescued. Now let that sit on top of whatever you feel about whatever certain political issue you're think, you think of that comes up in the news. There is a hungry side of the law and there is a well-fed side of the law. And how you view the law is shaped by which side you might be on. Right? So think about, right, as in this story, think about the immigration issue. It's, it's easy for those of us who are on the well-fed side of the law to be about the letter of it. But when you're on the hungry side of it, you might be more concerned with the spirit of it. Right? Now, both of these sort of micro and macro level realities would have been visible to those who read this book originally, right? Think about the first readers of this book. They would have known this stuff. But, but for those of us who are living in light of New Testament reality, so, so they would have seen these two sort of micro macro things culturally. Those who first read this book, those who might have been living during the time of the, the writing of this book. But only for those of us who are living in light of the New Testament reality of Jesus Christ... Is there a third cosmic view that we can view this book through that sees that God is always at work through the lives of those who the world views as insignificant and worthless, that God is at work in those lives? He, he's, at, he's at work through the lives of those who the world views as unimportant, and he's at work to bring about his purpose in the world, and that is where you and I relate to this book. That is where this book is very relevant for us. Right? Through this lens, this story becomes about the real world that you and I live in. This is not just a, oh, well, that's a Bible story, and you know, if we really want to tell it, we should put on like, our shepherd outfit and get my shepherd staff from, the, from my office and do you know, like a play where we put a little bit of hay on the carpet, and now we've got... No. Like, that stuff might be cute for kids, and I, I don't hate it, but we live in a real world. You and I both live in a Trouble comes out of nowhere, right? March 2020, anybody? Trouble comes out of nowhere. And where the God who could prevent this trouble doesn't always do anything. That's the world we live in. Trouble happens and God doesn't always stop it. We live in the world where the same kind of questions that Naomi raises are being raised in our own hearts and mind, right? What kind of questions is Naomi probably going to raise? Why, God? How could you let this happen and still love me? These are the questions we ask. And so now we have a place to land in this book. That's why I want to study this. I, I just don't think we need cotton candy. Like, my daughter loves candy. I love candy too. But if all I ever eat is candy, it's not going to be good for me. Or my teeth. My dentist will like it, but it won't be good for me. 
And in the same way, when we come to the scriptures, we don't need to just eat nothing but candy. We don't need to just make ourselves feel good. We need medicine for our souls. And this story, I think as seen through this lens, can give us the medicine we need, which is that God in Jesus is with us. And so this story gives, is going to give us a vision. This is another aspect of this. It's going to give us a vision for male-female relationships that I think is a really beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is actually all about. And we'll get there. It's going to take us places we don't expect to go. And I hope it'll continue to awaken us that there is a different way to be human. There's another way. We don't have to follow the ways of this world, right? That's how the Bible would say it. The way we might say it is, what's normal here in this world isn't normal for us. Don't assume that. And this story helps us take us places we didn't expect, awaken us to a different way to be human, which is what Jesus came to demonstrate in his life for us. And so this story is going to show us that there is a higher calling to living in the world when you know that you're God's child. There's a way to live when you know you're child uh, as those who bear his image. So before we dive into that first section of the story, let me just give you four building blocks that'll help you put on glasses by which you can see the book of Ruth during the series, okay? Four things. Number one, God is always the hero. Now that's true of the whole Bible, but in particular as we read Ruth, remember, this is pretty simple but pretty important, don't lose sight of God working through the people in this story. Ultimately, Boaz is not the hero, God is the hero. Now, maybe we can make an argument that Boaz is a type of Christ. That's a whole other conversation. But God is the hero. Boaz is not the hero. Ruth is not the hero. Naomi is not the hero. So God is always the hero. So that's the first thing. The second is that this story is framed inside of God's greater story. Okay, It's like a tent inside of a tent. This is not just a random standalone story in the Bible. There, those don't exist in the Bible. They're woven together in the tapestry of God's greater story. This story is part of the grand story of God's redemption of all things that started with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so this story shows us what one commentator called a blessed alliance between men and women. That's what I was talking about with male-female relationships. This story shows us an example of a blessed alliance between men and women that God intended to bless his creation with. That's part of this story. This means that for us as God's children together, bearing God's image to the world through our maleness and our femaleness is not a spectator sport, right? You have been called out by God to play your part in his plan to make all things new. The ancients called this a vocation, right? The word vocation is the same root word as voice calling, that God has called us to something. My vocation right now happens to be doing what I'm doing, but it's no more important than anyone else's vocation. I have a particular role to play, and you have a particular role to play. You've been called out by God to play your part. Uh, And so you see, what happens in God's world is our business as God's children. It matters. It matters what happens in this world. And the main characters in this story are going to grab on to this high calling and they're going to give us a vision of the kingdom of God and how we can pour ourselves out for others. 
That's part of this story. Third, this is not an American story. Okay, This is pretty obvious, but we need the reminder because we're kind of bad at this. This is not an American or Western story. Now, some of you are going to come from cultures that this makes a lot more sense to you than the culture I come from. But for, for if you come from the culture that I come from, you're going to have to actively fight the urge to see through those eyes. You're going to view this story through a certain set of lenses that are going to distort and are going to miss a lot. And so you have to actively be aware of and actually pushing against our sort of American Western view on the world. And so if we don't do that, we will miss it. And so probably the biggest part of this that we miss, and particularly as men, we are going to miss this especially, is that this story is taking place, again, in a real legitimate world of patriarchy. Are there still elements of that world that we've inherited? Absolutely, yes. Right? But our world, praise God, the world that I live in, is, is not the same in every way as the world that's taking place here. We've come a long way. We've got a ways to go, but we've come a long way. But this story takes place inside of a full-fledged patriarchal culture. Now, I want you to listen to this description of a full-fledged, like legitimate, overt patriarchal culture. Under patriarchy, a woman derives her value from men, her father, her husband, and especially her sons. Sons are patriarchy's gold standard for determining the value of a woman. And let me just say, that is not from God. That a woman's value is determined based on how many sons she's given her family. That is not from God. We'll get to that. But if we don't keep that in focus, if we don't understand that that's part of this world, we are not going to see how devastating that system of value becomes for the three women that we see in the story, particularly Ruth and Naomi. Orpah as well, but Ruth and Naomi. Everything is stacked against them. Everything is stacked against them. Fourth, here's the last part of these lenses, is that this is a literary work of art. That's what this book is. It's a piece of literature. This is why I've been encouraging you to read this in one setting. I would even encourage you either buy one or find one online, uh, what we call a reader's Bible. These Bibles take out the verse and chapter numbers, which are not inspired, so those didn't come from God. They're just helpful tools that we use, like page numbers. And so they remove that, and especially with a story like this, with as short as Ruth is, that's really helpful because you read the whole thing in one setting. And what happens in the first part you remember to the second part. This is like, this story is almost one scene. It's a short movie, but it's beautiful. And so this is meant, this book is meant to be appreciated as a work of art that it is, right? As we get further into this book, we're going to point this out more, but just know that our English Bibles and our modern sensibilities don't always play well with the ancient Hebrew literary devices, and so we can lose things in translations. For instance, one of those is repetition, and we don't like that, so the translators in English give us different words when actually it probably should be the same word to make a point that we miss because that's not a thing for us. So, so pay attention to that. So here, here's the four pieces if you're taking notes. God is always the hero. The story's framed inside of God's greater story. This is not an American or Western story, and this is literary art. Okay? Now, that's the introduction. Let me get to the sermon. <laughs> won't be that bad. So this week, the plan was to cover the first 13 verses. 
but as I was prepping, reading, praying, and since I just did that incredibly long intro, what I really want to focus on um, is really just to dig down into the world of this story. We really need to take some time to focus on just the first section, which is really the first eight sentences or so, the first five verses. Uh, if you have a Bible, it, it's the first little section there. So let me, I'm just going to read that section. I'm going to walk you through some of the uh, relevant things for today. Now, the heading says Naomi widowed. So we're starting off not on a good place, right? Verse 1, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Complete utter devastation of a life in five verses. Now, too often, when we, we read this story, as I said, this first section kind of gets put on a shelf. Like, that's just a setup for the, real, the love story. Boaz is coming, right? But don't do that when you read this book. That, that's not what we want to do here. We want to give ourselves the best opportunity to see what this story is all about. And to do that, let's take into account as much as we can of what was just said. So right off the bat, we're placed in a historical time period in the days of the judges. Of the, in the days of the judges. So what we know is that this is probably written sometime later because he's hearkening back to like back in those days. And then the next thing we see, first sentence, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so that sets the scene. It's bad. The land has no name in this book, but we can do well to assume it's the land of Palestine, that land that God promised to Abraham, and that he said was what? Flowing with milk and honey. Remember that? This is the same land. So this land of abundance is now in the midst of a famine. So, so that's interesting. We're given no reason at all. We don't have any idea why there was a famine, uh, but we do know that there was. And, and what we know is that famine is just the first in a... If you've read this book through, this famine is the first in a succession of stressors that are going to wreck Naomi's life. Life, and Ruth and Orpah's life, really. But this is the first in a succession, and it's pretty bad, right? A famine is pretty serious. It, it, to be a famine, it, it's been going on for a while. This isn't a new thing. Just to be, I want to help you be clear and as precise as we can be in the, what a famine is. As we throw that word around a lot, I've never experienced anything remotely close to a famine. I've been to South America and seeing places where people really don't know where their next meal is coming from, and there's places not too far from here that you could drive to that people experience that, that's poverty. Famine is a whole other level from that. Here's uh, the modern definition of famine that we use from the UN. At least 20% of households in an area face extreme food shortages with a limited ability to cope, and the prevalence of acute malnutrition in children exceeds 30%, and the death rate exceeds two people per 10,000 people per day. So, of course, there was no UN back in Naomi's time. But we should assume that this picture that was painted is either as bad or worse in Naomi's time, right? There, there's probably people who have died in view. They're probably having a hard time dealing with it 
right? They're probably having a hard, a famine is serious. There was no food. It's so bad, in fact, that as we see in the text, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, is so desperate that he packs everyone up and moves to a foreign land. He packs his wife and his two boys up and they move off to a foreign land. So here in the Bible, now Moab is, is kind of next to the land where they are. Uh, but here in the Bible, our main characters at this point, we have to deal with this. Our main characters are refugee immigrants driven from their land by famine. That's who this is about. So, so bring to mind those images we see on the news of people who've been starving from famine, who are fleeing the famine in their land, and understand that's who this story is centered on. Those people, right? Those people who are so skinny that you can't believe it. That's who this story is centered on. When I was a high school boy, I met one of the lost boys of Sudan. And if you don't know what that means, Google lost boys of Sudan and have some tissues ready. Um, He told us stories of how because they had no water, they would eat mud in order to just get some water in their body. And then they would deal with the consequences. This is the situation going on here. Famine in the land. So just by verse 2, we've met the family. We have Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. They're from Bethlehem, and now they've moved to Moab on foot. So by verse 2, who are they now? On verse 2, they are famished foreigners in a new land. They're living in conditions that are probably scary and miserable, right? Think refugee camps. They're probably not the only ones fleeing the famine. They are the others. They are the outsiders. This is not what Naomi envisioned her life to be. Nobody does. And sadly, in this story right now, this is as good as it's going to get. It's going to get way worse. And by the end of verse 4, now Naomi has endured the loss of her husband. And now, and catch, this is a part I've missed so much. She has lived another decade in this foreign land. Not like six months, 10 years have gone by. And on top of all this, during this time, her two boys married Moabite women. Now again, for us, this is not, we just pass over this, no big deal. But for the original readers of this, this is another pain point. For an Israelite to marry into a pagan culture is not what they wanted because they did not want to intermingle the foreign gods into their spiritual life. The god of Moab, Chemosh, or Chemosh, who Naomi's daughters-in-law would have worshipped, is described in the book of 1 Kings as detestable. So, this is another pain point for Naomi. And then next, is again a a piece of the story that I, I completely miss. It's another layer of misery and and, and sorrow for Naomi. Notice that in the 10 years it's mentioned, there's not a word of pregnancy in the family, right? In the 10 years that they've been living, they couldn't at least have a baby. And so now, infertility is part of the reality of this story as it's part of the story for many of us. That deep, profound, unexplainable heartache that is infertility is taken to a whole nother level in this time. This is a different world. 
Think of the accounts of the women in the Bible who are, who are called barren, right? That's the Bible word for it. Uh, here's three, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah. These biblical women even go to some extreme lengths to get, their, to get what their culture told them was the only way to be whole. And notice that, notice that in the stories of barren women who long for a child, none of them long for daughters. This is the world they're in. They long for sons. Why? This is the patriarchal world we mentioned earlier. For a woman like Naomi, who has lost all of her male relatives, only trouble and suffering await her, and she knows it. Ruth and Orpah also now bear this stigma of being barren. They're barren widows. It's been 10 years in marriages where no children have been born and especially no sons have been born. So now imagine the absolute head-spinning depression that must have gripped Naomi. All of this calamity has happened and God has said nothing in this story. He has said nothing. Where is he? Where is he? Maybe this is the question you have this question and you've, you've buried it. But I, I'm, I'm hoping that this series will dig it right back up for you so that you can bring it to him. God, where are you? How can you let this happen? How can you keep letting this happen? I lost my husband. Then my sons marry these Moabites. Then I live here for a decade, no children. Then they die. Now what? Where are you? And so Naomi's situation is the complete and utter destruction of her entire life. Her entire life, a commentator summed it up like this. Within the context of the ancient patriarchal culture, the day they buried Malon and Kilion, they essentially buried Naomi too. She might as well be dead. That the future offers no solace for Naomi. I'm reminded of uh, Habakkuk. And I'm just now reminded of it, so I might be misquoting, but basically Habakkuk says there's no new animals in the stalls. The fields aren't growing anything. Today is bad. Tomorrow looks worse. And, and that's what this story is about. Unlike Job, there is no starting over for a woman like Naomi. In, in, in her world, Naomi and now Ruth and now Orpah are instantly the most vulnerable people in their whole society. They instantly become targets for abuse, exploitation, slavery. Under this world of this kind of patriarchy, they have no independent legal recourse or voice. And so all the rights that, praise God, you ladies have, right, are completely absent in this world. So this is the world of Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. This is the setting for the story that's going to unfold over the next weeks as we work through this book. Now, we said earlier that this book is relevant to us because it means that we need to care about what happens in God's world. And the reality is that there are places in our world where this is still the way things are. And there are places in this world where people act like this is the way things should be. And as God's people, we must care. Right? But, but the question is, why should we care? Right? I'm not even going to get into how do we care, but, but why? What, what do we do? Or why should we care? Why, why should we care about the, peop, the plight of people who are vulnerable to the powerful, which is what these women are in, in this story? The reason is based in the, distinct, hear me, the distinctly Christian worldview and understanding of the value of a 
person which stands in sharp contrast to any culture or norm that devalues someone in the kinds of ways that we see in this book. This book raises in particular the question of, va- of the value of women. This book raises that question. Yes, this can be applied to all people generally, but I want to stick with this particularity for today because I don't think it's talked about enough. I haven't talked about it enough from this place. And here's how it plays itself out, even in a place with the best of intentions like the church. I can't tell you how many Mother's Days I've been to at church services. Well, I can't. I guess 36, right? I can't tell you how often it's been the case where we do this thing where we give out flowers to all the women that day because all women are mothers. And and I get the intention behind that, but we don't realize that we are perpetuating this idea that the value of a person, in particular you women, is based on what you can produce. This is why the book of Ruth is so devastating, if you'll let it be. How would Naomi's and Ruth's world count the value of these two women who are barren? count their sons. How valuable are you as a woman? How many sons do you have? But they have none. So what are they worth? In that world, they are worth just that, nothing. But in God's kingdom, that's not how value is counted. The the value of a woman is embedded in the reality that she has been made in the image of God and she has been called specifically in the way that only she can to display the character of God through her unique personhood. So her value is not based in anything that can be taken from her. It doesn't take away the pain, but it should place our focus on the real value. See, this is why the book of Ruth is good for us. This is why God gave us this book, men and women. This is God through his word begging to differ with the world that his word was given to. God, through, his, through this book, is standing against the norms of the culture that said women are unimportant and girls are not valuable. The book of Ruth is God zooming right in on this story that the world wants to pass over because it's full of unimportant people, women, who can't have... Zooms right in on that and says, this is where the story is. This is what I want you to look at. This is where I'm at work. In these people's lives. I will take the things that you think are not valuable and show you that they are of eternal significance and value in my kingdom. And that's what God is saying to us this morning as well. To all of us, but especially to you ladies this morning, God is saying your value is not based in what you do or what you produce or who you're married to or not married to, or if you're married, or if you have kids, or any of that other stuff, your value is in the reality that God has made you, and he loves you, and he's for you, and he's with you, and he's calling you deeper into all of that as you show him to the world just by being you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word crashes into us sometimes and causes us to see things we would rather not see. Father, thank you that as 
as I've studied this book, I'm confronted once again with the assumptions that I have about the way this world works. And I thank you that your word crashes into those and says, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, it's different. Look at this story. Look at the way that I value these three women who the world says aren't valuable. And look at the way that they're in the lineage of redemption. So I pray, Father, that as we read a book that is filled with pain and and also with beautiful loyalty and joy and love, that we would, again, bring all of our human experience to bear on, on our life together as a church family. Would you help us to be unafraid to express what's really happening? Would you help us to be bold, to not lie to one another? That if we are relating to to these people in this book, that we would be able to bring that to our friends who are here, part of this church family, and those friends would say, let's, let's walk in this together. I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together today as we take communion, and as we um, remember what it means to be brought together by your blood, and I just pray that over these next eight weeks, we dive into this book, and we would come out of it loving you more and being more aware of your presence with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.